Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Voris at Work podcast. I'm Jackie Ford. I'm a partner in the Labor and Employment Group at Voris and the host of our podcast. As you know, our podcast focuses on providing timely information on issues important to employers. And right now, all of you are facing an extraordinary host of issues related to the COVID-19 virus. To say that these are challenging times for employers would certainly be an understatement. So we wanted to use the podcast today to bring you some very helpful programming to help you analyze some of these very important issues. Voris just hosted a program called Voris On Call, where attorneys from multiple disciplines across the firm came together to talk about COVID-19 and workplace-related issues. So we wanted to share that recording with you today as a special episode of the podcast. I think you'll find this very informative and helpful. And in the description of the podcast, we'll also have some helpful links available for you to take you to resources at Voris to answer questions and help you navigate these waters. So with that, here's the Voris On Call program. First and foremost, uh, we, we hope that, that uh, all of you, uh, your families, your friends, your coworkers are all in good health and that you stay healthy and safe going forward. Uh, I, I hope and trust all of you out there are practicing your social distancing and washing your hands frequently. Um, Obviously, we're here today because the implications of the coronavirus pandemic are far-reaching. Uh, our firm has been fielding questions from our clients across the country, uh, seemingly around the clock, uh, on a variety of matters related to the outbreak. Um, there, there are certainly more questions than there are answers right now, and the landscape continues to change rapidly. Uh, nonetheless, we're going to do our best to provide what answers we can today uh, and help allay some of your, your concerns. Um, we have today a, a, a sort of tag team of folks. Uh, we have six attorneys from six different legal disciplines who will talk today. Uh, I'm going to lead off by discussing employment issues, in, including um, leave of absence and furlough issues, travel restrictions, and as time permits, they may be able to touch on some workers' compensation and OSHA concerns as well. Uh, with me today also from the Voice firm are Chris Poth, who's going to speak to you about benefits issues, Jolie Havens, uh, who's going to talk about healthcare issues. Rob Bell will talk about commercial contracts and supply chain matters. Betsy Fair will discuss governance from virtual meetings. And then finally, Tom Ciccone is going to discuss uh, insurance risks. We're going to move fairly quickly through these topics as there is a lot to cover. Um, each of the attorneys uh, who will be speaking today are going to provide an overview of the types of questions that we're receiving. Uh, and some general considerations for you to, to weigh. Uh, we, we do plan, as, as Kayla said, to field questions, so please use the instructions provided to submit them as we go, and we'll do our best to get to as many as we can. Uh, so with that, I'll start our discussion with legal questions regarding employment law matters. Uh, and I'll start with the leave of absence and furlough issues. This is probably the most common call that we've been getting uh, over the past week or so, uh, not just, again, the leave of absence issues, but also what, uh, what our clients can do or what you can do to, to, um, with employees who aren't able to work due to coronavirus-related shutdowns or reduced operations. Um, obviously, uh, you, you've all probably by now heard of the passage of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, and that's on the forefront of everybody's mind, and I'm going to spend some time talking about that in just a second. But before I go there, uh, I just want to make a note that you know, the legal issues when it comes to how to deal with employees who are unable to work uh, because of, of virus-related issues, um, particularly when it comes to pay and, and, and leave issues, they're pretty straightforward from a legal perspective, um, but they get very difficult and complex when, when you have to merge them with, with your real-world business considerations, and we understand that. Um, but from a legal perspective, first and foremost, employers generally are not required to pay employees if they're not working. Um, so they have to pay them for time spent actually working. For your hourly employees, um, you pay them for each hour worked. Um, for your salaried employees, the one catch here that you want to be careful about is if they work in any portion of the defined work week, then they should be paid for that entire work week. Uh, and it's only if they don't perform any work in a work week 
that they um, that they don't have to be paid. And bear in mind that the the law requires you to pay people that you suffer or permit to work. So particularly if you have folks who are on uh, who are working remotely, um, you need to be able to you know to track that work and make sure you know who is working and who isn't, so you can comply with your pay obligations. Um, obviously, uh, some states and local jurisdictions have their own paid leave requirements, uh, and if you live in one of those or work in one of those jurisdictions, you should of course. Um, make sure you're following those requirements. Otherwise, um, each of you has your own paid time off policies, usually a combination of sick and vacation leave. You should apply those policies as you normally would, um, uh, consistently and appropriately with, with their terms. Um, <clears throat> now, mo many of our, uh, many employers at this point in time, given the circumstances, uh, have chosen to modify or expand their leave offerings in, in light of what's going on. Um, but again, at present, they're generally not required to do so, um, subject, of course, to the requirements of the uh, Families First Act. Um, and I'll talk about that next. But again, the key to any, as with any employment policy, is to make sure uh, whatever you do, whether you modify, expand, or, or hold tight, whatever you do, make sure that you are um, applying your policy consistently and in a non-discriminatory manner. And if you ever have a need to pick and choose among associates uh, who are going to keep working and those who are going to send home, make sure you have a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for you know, how you choose um, who's going to be doing what. So with that sort of background, let me, let me jump into the Families First Act that was passed by the Senate yesterday. It was signed by, law, uh, signed by the President into law last night, so it has now been enacted. A couple of um, preliminary things to, to Keep in mind, the law only applies, and there are a lot of provisions in the law beyond the two that I'm going to focus on. I'm going to focus on the paid sick leave and the expanded FMLA provisions. There are other provisions in this law that require, for example, um, you know, free testing for the coronavirus and, and other things. I'm, I'm going to focus on the two more employment-related issues uh, for today. Um, those, those, those requirements and those provisions apply to employers with 500 or fewer employees and all public sector employers. So if you're over 500, this doesn't apply to you. Um, <clears throat> so as for the paid sick leave provisions, um, so the, the Families First Act temporarily requires emergency paid sick leave for uh, employees unable to work or telework, and that's um, that was put into the act by the Senate or by the by the um, uh, amendments on Monday in the House, approved by the Senate. Uh, work or telework for six enumerated reasons, and those six reasons are um, if they're subject to government-required quarantine or isolation related to COVID-19. Two, if they're advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine due to COVID-19 concerns. Three. Uh, if they are experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 and are seeking a medical diagnosis. Uh, so those three kind of stay, stay grouped together, so keep those three sort of at the top of the list. Uh, the fourth reason why they would be enable, entitled to sick leave is to care for an individual who is subject to quarantine. And I would note at this point that there is no definition of individual provided in this act, so it does not appear to be limited to family members. Um, Number five, uh, those caring for a minor son or daughter whose school or daycare provider is closed or unavailable because of the COVID-19 outbreak. And sixth, uh, is any other sort of a catch-all, any other substantially similar condition uh, as specified by the Secretary of Health and Human Services down the road. So those are the six uh, uh, bases on which an employee can qualify for this paid sick leave. Uh, the, the law requires uh, that 80 hours of paid sick leave be available for full-time employee, employees. Uh, for part-time employees, they get a pro rata amount uh, equal to the average number of hours they, would, they work in two weeks. Um, I will note that uh, the law does not contain any specific certification requirements regarding the leave, and those are things that are going to have to be worked out. Um, the Department of Labor has been advised to prov provide regulations and guidance on this within the next 15 days, which is when the, the law will actually take place, 15 days from enactment. 
should also note that as far as the paid sick leave goes, the benefits are capped at $511 per day for absences that are related to those top three uh, reasons that I, that I mentioned, the personal quarantine type issues, reasons one through three, that benefit is capped at $511 per day. For the other reasons, the caring for provisions, like I'll, I'll refer to them as, those are capped at $200 per day for the, for the paid leave. Uh, as for the expanded FMLA provisions in the Act, um, first and foremost, it's important to, to recognize that these do not impact leave requirements that are related to non-coronavirus conditions. So the, the FMLA, as we know and love it, before you know a week ago, still exists in its same form. Uh, the, the, the revisions here, the, the amendments, uh, are intended to apply only to very specific coronavirus-related uh, issues. Um, and so the amendments in the Act provide coronavirus-related FMLA protections for employees with at least 30 days of service. So this is a significant expansion of the eligibility requirements applicable to other FMLA protections, which require 12 months of service, 1,250 hours of work, et cetera. Um, for for the, these purposes only, you can qualify if you have 30 days of service. Um, the, the basis of eligibility was scaled down a bit from the original version, and so now it only covers FMLA leave to care for a minor son or daughter if the child's school or place of care has been closed or if their uh, care provider is unavailable due to the COVID-19 emergency. So we've got a limited basis on which the expanded FMLA provisions will kick in. They would still provide 12 weeks of job-protected leave uh, under the Act, uh, under the amendment, the first two weeks can be unpaid, uh, although an employee can, of course, elect to use available accrued paid leave to cover uh, that time. After that, the remaining available uh, 10 weeks of leave time must be paid by the employer at two-thirds of the employee's regular salary. However, now it's up to a maximum cap of $200 per day. They've lowered some of the, uh, some of the uh, caps in, in the final version. Um, the payments required under the Act, whether it be for sick leave or for the FMLA expansion, will be reimbursed by the government through an immediate payroll tax credit. So um, if your tax bill doesn't cover the full credit that you're entitled to, a refund will be available as well. Uh, so the, uh, the intention here is for employers to be able to get immediate relief uh, and reimbursement for any sick leave payments that they make. Um, again, both the uh, FLA amendment and the new paid sick time requirement will take effect 15 days after the enactment of the law, which was last night, and are set to expire at the end of this calendar year. Uh, now, notably, um, the Families First Act does not appear to cover any employee who is laid off or furloughed because his or her employer temporarily closes down operations due to coronavirus concerns or because of government mandates. Um, this is it's strictly a sick leave provision. So um, this is significant because in, in our experience, the focus of many employers over the last few days has really shifted away from sick leave issues and more toward concerns related to shutdowns or reduced operations. Um, so at the moment, if you're, if you're struggling with how to handle those employees in a, in a shutdown or a furlough situation, there really is not a significant roadmap for this yet. It's going to depend on, on your circumstances, your own business considerations, and a number of other you know, unique factors um, that you have to assess. Uh, I will say that uh, most employers do appear to be attempting to soften the blow as much as they can, but realistically we know there will eventually be limits um, uh, on what an employer can reasonably do under the circumstances. There are additional aid packages being discussed in Congress um, that may include direct payments to some employees and also some assistance to small businesses and other things as well. Uh, I think the best thing we can do for you at this particular moment in time is just tell you to stay tuned and, and, and pay attention. And as soon as additional options are available under um, you know, federal programs, we will certainly make that known to you and, and provide additional information. So the one safety net that still that really exists right now and that has been expanded 
uh, under the current circumstances is the unemployment compensation uh, system. Federal government has released additional funds to cover unemployment compensation claims. Uh, the state of Ohio and several other states uh, have expanded their provisions to ensure that they cover coronavirus-related instances of being out of work, uh, and they have eliminated the waiting periods for receiving benefits, which is a very substantial move. Normally, there was a seven-day waiting period. But again, this only provides a limited safety net because um, benefits are still limited, limited to a maximum amount in most states. For example, in Ohio, uh, benefits are capped somewhere between $480 and $647 per week, depending on how many allowable dependents you have. Um, also, uh, and this has become an issue with a lot of our clients, um, unemployment compensation is basically a secondary payer. So employers can't just supplement the benefit. Uh, with certain exceptions, um, regulations do permit small payments in the amount of less than 20% of the, of the employee's benefit amount without impacting the, the, the benefit entitlement. But that's a relatively small amount, in most cases probably less than $100 a week, um, that you might be able to supplement without affecting the benefit. Otherwise, um, uh, it's going to be taken away from the benefit dollar for dollar. Um, so those those have not you know th those don't 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 provide a full answer to the to the problem of replacing employees' income, but it does provide some assistance. Uh, before I move on to travel issues, I am going to take a quick word to talk about taking temperatures, which has become a big subject, particularly in the last 24 hours. Um, in Ohio, uh, our governor yesterday suggested that all employers should take temperatures of all of their employees on a daily basis. Um, I think that that suggestion was a little bit rash, personally. Not that it isn't a good idea, and by the way, it is not an order at the moment, it is still a suggestion. Um, but given the relative unavailability of thermometers in the first place, um, and uh, the impracticability on a, on a, on a you know on a rush basis to to institute that sort of program, um, it, it may be difficult. Also, if you do decide to do that, there are certain um, obligations that you're going to have to you know be prepared for from a confidentiality standpoint, from a privacy standpoint, from uh, making sure you know what you do with that information and what exactly your 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 benchmark is going to be when you take the temperature. What are you going to do with the employees if you have to send them home? So we don't have time to get much deeper into that, but I did want to mention it before my time was up. Uh, let me quickly return uh, turn to uh, some information about travel restrictions. I think most people are pretty well up to speed on, on these. You know, As far as international travel goes, uh, you're aware of the increased travel bans. Uh, uh, countries with level three warnings, as assessed by the Centers for Disease Control, um, from which travel to the U.S. is now banned, include China, Iran, Italy, uh, most of Europe, basically the Schengen countries, and now including also the U.K. and Ireland. Um, these countries, along with South Korea and Malaysia, which has been added this week, are now level three warning locations acknowledged by the CDC. Uh, U.S. citizens are exempted from these travel bans, but citizens who traveled to or through these countries within the previous 14 days are going to be subject to medical screening and quarantine upon return. If you've seen the same pictures I have at the airports, you will agree that this does not look like a happy event. Um, it's frankly almost hard to believe that the risk of contracting the virus isn't greater while waiting in the crushing lines at the airport than it was spending time in those countries. But nonetheless, that is the situation uh, at present. Um, I think what's also important to note is that, uh, is the, is the, um, is that Canada has closed its borders to non-Canadian uh, citizens. I mean, two days ago when this happened, they were leaving it open to, to U.S. citizens, but, not, but nobody else. Uh, within 24 hours of that, Canada and the United States agreed to close their borders, uh, their shared borders, to all uh, non-essential travel. So travel to Canada now is also being restricted. We do not yet know exactly what the meaning of non-essential is going to be. That's still being worked out. Uh, it is, uh, important to note that trade is not affected by this new ban. But what it means is if you, um, if you have a business that have foreign nationals in the United States who regularly travel to affiliate locations in Canada, this could be a real concern that you'll have to manage um, going forward. And quickly, um, just a note about workers' compensation issues. 
generally speaking, um, it's probably the one area where we don't see the coronavirus having a meaningful impact on our clients' programs or, or claims. An infectious disease has never, to our knowledge, been considered a work-related diagnosis. It's mostly because of the difficulty you know, to, of an infected employee being able to establish to a reasonable degree of medical probability that, that he or she contracted the virus at work. And even if they could do that, they would still have to establish that the, um, the, the, the illness arose out of employment. Um, if you have remote workers, um, the answer to the question of whether injuries that occur at home can be compensable is yes. However, the same issues would arise. Did it happen um, in the course of and arising out of employment as opposed to just, you know, tripping over your dog on your way to the bathroom? So um, those issues, if our best advice there is if you get a claim from somebody working at home, probably should deny it initially and then contact your workers' comp counsel to discuss uh, the best way to evaluate going forward. Um, and I'll just say with respect to OSHA that there really aren't any specific OSHA standards covering uh, COVID-19. Um, an employee who does not want to work because they feel that the workplace is unsafe because they fear contracting the illness probably has no right to do so. Um, the, the standard for being allowed to do that is imminent danger, um, reasonably, reasonably expected to cause death or serious physical harm. We don't believe that that likely exists, but every, in every instance you have to make an individualized analysis, and I suppose if you're a nursing home in Seattle, the answer may be a little bit different, uh, not to make light of that at all, but th that's the importance of the individualized analysis. So I think I'm out of time, uh, and, and so I will now pass it off to Chris Poth, who is a partner in our benefits section in the Columbus Board's office. Chris? Great. Thank you, Bob. Um, I'm going to just mention really quick, kind of tag on a little bit what Bob mentioned about the tax credit um, for the uh, leave and the expanded FMLA. Um, there is a portion of that tax credit for those employers that are required to comply with those provisions that you can add to um, that tax credit a prorated portion of your group health plan coverage that you're providing. So a portion of that will be included um, in the tax credit. And that tax credit is really going to work through the Form 941. So that's how you're going to be applying for that. Um, moving on to other, um, you know, we've been getting some questions about group health plan coverage. And um, the first one that we've been getting is, does my group health plan have to cover the COVID-19 testing? Um, and I think as of yesterday, the answer is yes. Um, the Families First Act does now provide that group health plans, whether you're self-funded or fully insured, must begin um, effective March 18th, um, 2020, to cover um, the cost, uh, cover certain items at no cost sharing to your employees. So that means without regards to deductibles, coinsurance, any other out-of-pocket costs for your um, employee. Um, what you have to cover under your plan, according to the Families First Act, is the cost of testing for COVID-19, the cost of administration of the COVID-19 test, and then any items and services furnished to an individual during their visit um, to a healthcare provider, including urgent care visits, emergency room visits, but only to the extent that such items and services relate to the furnishing or administration of the product or to the evaluation of the individual for purposes of determining um, whether they are in need of getting tested. Um, the, also, as part of the Families First Act, the group health plan cannot dictate where the testing is conducted. So what we normally see are common cost-sharing measures are not available at this time. Um, the mandate does not require coverage of uh, the treatment um, at no cost right now for COVID-19. It really is only picking up the testing plus uh, the fees associated with that testing. Um, so the next question um, that we're getting is, again, do we have to cover the treatment right now? And the answer is no. Uh, we did get some IRS guidance last week that indicated if an employer wants to expand their coverage under their group health plan to pick up the cover uh, the treatment of COVID-19 at no cost sharing, that that is permissible, and that they will not consider um, the coverage of that at no cost to jeopardize anybody's high deductible health plan. It would still 
um, be able, individuals participating in, in that plan would still be able to make contributions um, to, a, to an HSA. Um, this change, the Families First Act, is um, going to require a plan amendments to the group health plan. And um, to the extent that an employer wants to expand the terms of their plan to pick up the treatment at no cost to employees, we are strongly recommending that you coordinate, coordinate that change to the extent that you are self-funded with your stop-loss carrier to make sure that they are on board with that change. Um, other group health plan issues that we are um, coming across, as Bob mentioned, we are having a lot of um, clients um, put their employees out on a temporary leave or some are actually terminating employment. And we just have a reminder that the COBRA continuation rules still apply. And so you're going to want to analyze whether those individuals are subject to COBRA. And then a final note on group health plan issues that we just want to remind everybody that the HIPAA privacy um, rules still apply and you're going to want to make sure that as we're dealing with all of the COVID-19 issues that you are still compliant with those HIPAA privacy. The next um, area that we are getting questions on is retirement plans. Um, so right now uh, we have been um, having some employers come forward and saying what can I do to shut down my employer contribution um, in our uh, qualified retirement plan. Um, what we have been advising there is it just depends on the type of the contribution. You may have an advance notice requirement before you can shut that down from anywhere from 30 to 45 days. So again, that's something, um, and, and in some cases you may not be able to shut it down depending on whether the um, participant has already accrued the benefit. So that's something that we're having to analyze on a case-by-case -case basis, but just you know, you can't automatically just shut it down. That's something you have to look at and see if you have to follow the rules. Uh, we have been getting questions about whether the these new, uh, you know, leave and FMLA provisions in the Family First Act um, constitute compensation under the retirement plan. We are still analyzing this right now, um, but our initial um, our initial uh, review is we think that. Uh, possibly that the monies from the public health emergency leave would be considered compensation under the act and to the extent an employer that's subject to that that does not want that compensation included in, in their qualified retirement plan, uh, we would need to get an amendment in place in the next 15 days to um, shut that down from being included in compensation. Um, we are additionally getting questions about whether hardship withdrawals are permissible. Um, and um, right now for the COVID-19 situation. Um, right now we have the general rules on hardship withdrawals, and so that means you can take hardship withdrawals for unpaid medical expenses, um, And but right, we don't have a hardship withdrawal just for these temporary leave situations that we're seeing. Um, I am told um, that there is draft legislation um, that that is being circulated in DC right now that is going to be addressing this hardship withdrawal and that there is some indication that we are going to get some legislation that's going to add the COVID-19 situation as a um, circumstance in which an employee can take a hardship withdrawal. Um, remains to be seen, you're not required to have hardship withdrawals in a qualified retirement plan, so it remains to be seen whether uh, the legislation will mandate that plans um, allow for hardship withdrawals. Uh, the next item that we're getting questions about is loans. Um, for those employers that have been putting their employees on unpaid short leaves of absence, what does that do to the loan repayments? Um, will the, right, the question is, will the employee um, default on the um, loans? There's a couple of ways that we've been um, you know, working with our clients to walk them through this issue, um, whether the outside vendor, for example, will take uh, payments from the um, employees that are not done through payroll. Um, there is also currently a provision in place that um, loan repayments can be suspended for unpaid leaves of absence. But again, there's a little caution there to the extent that your employees are receiving any type of PTO pay. 
that can negate that um, unpaid leave of absence exception. And again, we are also hearing that the legislation that is being drafted right now is also going to address and maybe provide some relief um, for the loan situation. The next item that we're getting questions about is the dependent care um, flexible spending accounts that many employers have in place. Um, so the, we're getting questions, can a current election be canceled in light of the daycare closures? And the answer is yes, that would be a mid-year event upon which an employee can reduce their election or actually stop their election. Um, we're getting questions about whether can, can new elections be made because children are now at home and need to be watched while parents are working from home. And the answer to that also is yes, that that constitutes a mid-year um, event. Um, there, there are some rules um, that I'm going to just kind of um, put out there. Uh, this is another area we're expecting the legislation to cover because when we look at the rules on dependent care, there are rules for short uh, temporary absences and part-time employment, and they don't fit neatly with this situation. So we are expecting that legislation, again, that's being drafted right now to address the dependent care. And then finally, we have been um, getting some questions about deferred compensation plans. Um, we've been asked whether employers can delay payments um, under deferred compensation plans. Um, again, these deferred compensation plans are going to be subject to 409A. And so the answer to that question right now is we think no, unless the IRS issues some coronavirus-related relief um, as an other event or condition upon which the employer would be um, permitted to delay the payments. Um, we've also been getting some questions about whether the employer can accelerate the payment. And again, under 49A, uh, we do have guidance that um, payments can be made for unforeseeable emergencies, but again, you've got to satisfy all those criteria for what is an unforeseeable emergency under 49A, and that means exhausting other sources of income before the payment can come out of a deferred comp plan. Again, it remains to be seen whether we're going to get some guidance from the IRS on this as well. Um, so the other thing that we're doing, uh, the other question that we're getting is um, can short-term incentive payments be deferred? Um, and again, our general rule of thumb is those payments, if they're paid on or before March 15th of the calendar year, that's not going to turn it into deferred comp. Fiscal year employers, you may have a later date than March 15th because of the way the rules are written. Um, but if you go beyond um, the 49A date for which it's a short-term or, or you know a short-term deferral exception to 49A, you may have defer have turned that into deferred comp, and you might have a 49A violation because you would not have had a written um, agreement in place before the beginning of the tax year. And finally, on the um, deferred comp, we've been getting questions about whether equity plan option election periods can be extended. And the answer is yes, those can be extended um, so long as they're not extended beyond uh, the term of the original option. So that's just a brief overview of just some of the benefit issues. Um, again, as Bob said, stay tuned on this one. Um, that draft legislation is floating around in DC right now, so we are expecting to see a lot of changes, um, a lot of relief, I think, on the benefit area, probably in the next couple of days coming out. So um, on that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Julie Havens, who is a partner and the head of our healthcare group to handle the issues that we're seeing with um, the healthcare. Hey, Chris, thanks so much. Um, Healthcare providers are unquestionably at the front lines of this pandemic. Uh, we're getting questions from really every segment of the healthcare industry, as well as from other industries, asking about specific healthcare regulatory issues. Um, I would just a, a plug for our healthcare clients. Remember that healthcare providers are also businesses. Um, and during this time, they're trying to run their businesses while also delivering um, the necessary care to their patients. And that is, you know, particularly challenging in this environment. Um, providers are already very accustomed to rapidly, a rapidly evolving regulatory landscape. That's, that's their world and that's our world. Um, changes have exponentially increased, however, as providers across the industry are getting new guidance literally daily from federal and state regulators on managing this pandemic and related issues. 
specific guidance has been issued by these regulators to virtually every segment of the healthcare industry. We're getting lots of questions um, on the guidance that is out there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'll just go over um, a few of those areas. Lots of questions on patient and visitor relations, including restriction of visitors and taking temperatures. Um, issues surrounding accepting new patients, residents, and consumers, particularly those with actual or suspected COVID-19 diagnosis. Closures and other limitations on services and related continuity of care issues. Compliance with individual plans of care for clients and consumers in certain segments of the industry. Informed consent issues, this is a very basic one, but um, one that our provider clients should revisit, particularly with recent changes in telemedicine. I'm gonna to touch on those in a moment um, as we're getting a ton of questions also on uh, telemedicine and other remote care options. Providers are also asking about EMR configuration, coding and billing for services and general revenue cycle management during this time. We're also getting questions on FDA regulation of personal protective equipment, such as surgical masks and N95 respirators. Those are FDA regulated. Um, and as we know, in incredibly short supply. We're also getting more nuanced uh, questions from, from specific segments of the healthcare industry, including many of our behavioral health and developmental disabilities providers related to issues on, you know, unique issues on staffing, medication assisted treatment and the like. We've also been asked about the status of a vaccine. Um, lots of articles out there on that now. There is no vaccine or specific approved treatment at the moment. Basically, symptoms are being managed. Um, work on a vaccine is certainly progressing. We had the first person in the U.S. dosed with an experimental vaccine just a few days ago. But again, this is phase one testing. So it's focused on safety, uh, which is the first step in clinical development. Additional efforts are underway both domestically and internationally, but realistically, it sounds like, you know, unless there are other changes with the FDA, for example, we're looking at probably 12 to 18 months at least for a vaccine. That being said, medical professionals are also looking at off-label use of certain existing medicines, for example, certain medicines for the treatment of cancer to determine if those may be uh, able to combat COVID-19 as well. Globally, the majority of measures that are being put in place are intended to slow the spread and increase resource capacity so that current healthcare system uh, options will not get completely overwhelmed. While providers across the industry are, I think, as prepared as they possibly can be and are stepping up in incredible and unprecedented ways, we have to all realize resources aren't unlimited. We hear about ICU beds and other critical equipment that's in short supply and need to be used for, you know, practitioners and those most in need of care. But I think we're all realizing that right now, one of the things we must all ensure is that we have healthy practitioners. Um, the physicians, nurses, and, and, you know, other healthcare professionals and first responders that are providing this care are critical. None of this gets done without them. And providers also have administrative teams that are keeping them afloat from a business standpoint during this during this crazy time. So, you know, we need to think about all of these people to ensure that they're able to, to continue doing what they need to do to keep us as healthy as possible. Important measures are being taken at the state and federal level um, to, address, to address potential practitioner shortage issues um, so that everyone who's in need of care, not necessarily related to COVID-19, can actually get that care. We're seeing state regulators relaxing certain licensure requirements, requirements surrounding prescriptive authority, and other requirements related to face-to-face um, -to -face visits to, so that we can get care out there and have it be available as broadly as possible. For example, someone providing services in a state in which they're not currently licensed. We're also seeing measures to address unique issues presented in certain segments of the healthcare industry, including uh, behavioral health and developmental disabilities. We're also seeing the waiver of some daycare requirements um, to allow for the establishment of daycares, particularly located at providers, so that our practitioners can continue to work um, while schools are closed or, or daycare may be unavailable. One very, very important change um, implemented to address the potential practitioner shortage is the recent expansion of telemedicine and other remote treatment capabilities. 
we just released an alert on this uh, this morning, so take a look at that if you have not already. And we are actually working on another one to be released today, um, which will touch on the various issues in the Family First Act that was signed into law yesterday. That includes, as, as Bob and Chris mentioned, some new coverage and cost-sharing requirements, along with some more nuanced issues tied to Medicaid FMAP funding and, and other healthcare issues. I'll share a bit here, though. Um, the federal government, as I said, recently relaxed Medicare telemedicine requirements, and the Office of Civil Rights, which is largely responsible for enforcing HIPAA, also waived related impediments under HIPAA, all on a very temporary basis, so that care can be provided in good faith by our practitioners across the country. Um, we're also seeing this being done at the state level with respect to telemedicine, and we've seen measures, for example, in Texas, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Medicare, as well as Medicaid, CHIP, TRICARE, and other private payers, um, as Chris mentioned, will cover the COVID-19-related testing. Medicare and certain other payers are also going to be covering um, these expanded telehealth services and um, some level of treatment uh, related to the COVID-19. Note that under the new telemedicine expansion, the care doesn't have to be related to, to COVID-19. It can be for any covered healthcare service, and providers can generally use any available audio or video communication method, which could include FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, Skype, you know, really any electronic means. Providers are also being given some leeway to waive cost sharing for uh, certain services without violating patient inducement laws. So we'll want to be cognizant of those as well. It's somewhat unclear right now exactly what role Medicaid is going to play at this time, but the federal government has authorized greater flexibility to get more individuals enrolled in Medicaid and to otherwise theoretically expand Medicaid services, which is going to allow states to better leverage the safety net program during the crisis. Notably in Ohio, for example, various state agencies are working together very collaboratively on a comprehensive telehealth package, which will be tied to Medicaid. Important measures are also being taken to facilitate broader testing. Um, if, if you or a loved one suspects they may have uh, COVID-19, the, the process and manner for you to get tested is going to vary by state. Additional dedicated testing sites, including drive-through testing, are popping up all over the place. Um, a lot of information out there regarding how to get tested and the process for doing it. So if your clinical situation permits, um, educating yourself on your state's and your provider's process is, is well advised. States are now also permitted to develop their own tests, particularly because we're seeing individuals who are testing positive but are asymptomatic, and which has the potential to you know, unknowingly increase community spread. These tests, though, need to be processed by labs, um, which also creates some additional stress on, on the healthcare system. We're seeing test results roughly you know, two to four days, but sometimes more quickly. It's thought that the COVID-19 cases we're seeing now are only the tip of the iceberg due to these testing shortages. So we expect that daily guidance is going to continue for the healthcare industry um, and beyond as this evolves. The Voorhees healthcare team is, is literally working around the clock and we are continuously monitoring these developments. So please do let us know um, if you have questions or, or we can otherwise assist you. I'm now going to turn it over to my partner, Rob Bell. Um, he is in Columbus and in the Finance, Energy, and Real Estate Group. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. The focus of my discussion will be on the non-performance of contractual obligations due to the spread of COVID-19. Before turning to the issues that Voorhees has been addressing with clients, I first want to provide everyone with some building blocks for today's discussion. Because whether you are a party to a contract that is considering providing notice of non-performance due to the circumstances arising from the spread of COVID-19, or you are a party receiving such notice, the analysis is the same. There are four issues your organization should consider. First, what are the available defenses for non-performance? Second, what are the notice requirements? Third, the ability to mitigate or overcome the COVID-19 event. And fourth, what are the consequences for asserting the defense on your contractual obligations? I want to touch briefly on the potential available defenses, and they fall into three buckets. The first is the force majeure defense. This defense is available only and only to the extent provided in your contract. If there is no force majeure provision, then if the contract deals with the sale of goods, 
UCC Section 2-615 may offer a commercial impracticability defense. If there's no force majeure provision and the contract is a general contract, then applicable state law may offer defenses such as impossibility, impracticability, and or frustration of purpose. Now turning to some of the situations that Voris has been addressing with clients. The first wave of calls related to the disruption of supply chains for parts and products coming from China. We believe the China situation is instructive for all of you as supply chains within the U.S. will face similar interruptions. The client calls presented to us with three different scenarios. The first was a client received a force majeure letter from a supplier operating in China notifying the client of supply disruption. The second is a client is concerned that it will soon receive notifications of supply disruptions from its supply base. And the third is the client itself is the supplier operating in China and is concerned that COVID-19 spread will cause it to interrupt the supply chains. In all three scenarios, the basis for analysis is the same. Three of the points I just raised with you. That is, is there a currently available defense? Second, can the situation be mitigated or overcome? And third, what is the effect of asserting the defense on contractual obligations? But, and this is a key but, the discussion does not end there, because once we fully analyze the supply chain disruption situation, the next question is what impact that situation has on other organization contracts, for example, customer contracts or other supplier contracts. And let me illustrate. Suppose that the China supplier provided Part A, and other U.S. suppliers provided Parts B, C, and D, and the client manufactured the parts to produce an end product which is sold to a customer. When the China supplier disrupts the client, then the client has a potential non-performance situation of its own with its suppliers and its customers, and the client will need to analyze its defenses under its customer contracts and other supply contracts. Again, these scenarios are going to be instructive for what we will inevitably face here in the U.S. The most recent calls that we've been fielding are calls from clients wishing to discuss contracts critical to the core of their business. And there's one example or variation of a call I would like to share with you. The client calls and says, we have hundreds or even thousands of contracts. Some contracts are in our forms, some contracts are in counterparty forms, and some contracts include little or no documentation. And they ask, is there a one-size-fits-all approach to addressing non-performance of contractual obligations due to COVID-19 events? The answer is that each contract creates a unique set of circumstances, and for each contract, best practice is to analyze defenses with respect to that contract alone. This is not to say that form or generic force majeure letters are not being used by parties. They are, and we've seen them. The risk that you take is the effectiveness of such genetic, generic letters. And the uniqueness of each contract situation may be best illustrated by the varying approaches state governments are taking with their orders and their directives. For those of us living in Ohio, you know our state government is leading with the most restrictive orders and directives. But certain other state governments are not there yet and maybe won't ever be there. Thus, a company operating in Ohio and a company operating in, say, North Dakota may not be subject to similar restrictions or orders and therefore their defense, the defenses may apply to one, but not the other. In closing, we are in the first stage of addressing non-performance issues raised by COVID-19 events, the analysis and notification and communication stage. The next stage will be for the parties to try to resolve or settle their disputes under these contracts. And if that is not successful, eventually litigation. And with that, I'd like to pass it over to Betsy Fair, a partner in our Columbus, Ohio, office in the corporate group, and Betsy will be presenting on governance from virtual meetings. Thank you, Rob. Uh, the, the issue that has come up recently in the corporate area is the holding of virtual meetings and can they be done. Uh, the first question or the first uh, most important thing that I think I tell clients right now is contact one of the uh, service providers to make sure that there will in fact be the necessary platform and it can be provided on a timely basis. Many have been using Broadridge's virtual shareholder meeting platform, but I'm also aware of others who are using 
platforms provided by EQ and DFIN. Uh, my understanding is that those services are starting to get um, to their saturation point, so if you are interested, please go ahead and call those services right away. If you haven't already done so and you are considering changing from a an in-person annual meeting to a virtual annual meeting, first thing you need to do is review your charter documents. And I'm going to focus on Ohio, which would be your articles and your regulations. Some companies have already provided for the option to hold shareholder meetings by means of communications equipment, i.e. virtual meetings. For those that haven't, Ohio has a variety of ways to address virtual meetings. If your company is an issuing public corporation, that is a corporation that has 50 or more shareholders with a significant Ohio presence, such as principal executive offices or principal place of business, as long as your articles and regulations do not require that a meeting be held at a particular physical place and authorize the directors to fix the place of the meeting, the directors may also determine that the meeting be held virtually, assuming the statutory requirements for contemporaneous participation are satisfied. The key factor here is that unless you have already provided for an alternative in your uh, resolutions that the board adopted setting, uh, calling the annual, your annual meeting and setting the parameters for that, you will likely have to do a new action by the board. And the clients that I've been working with that, on that have been doing just that, and they're doing it as an action writing, circulating um, among the board and getting the signatures electronically. If your company is not an issuing public company, the option is essentially a hybrid where you would actually have a meeting, and I say a meeting in quotes, you, you would still designate a place of the meeting, but the directors would authorize virtual attendance as an option for participation. In fact, some issuing public companies are using this hybrid version because there is an issue in Ohio about the need to resend a notice if you change from an in-person meeting to a virtual meeting. The notice section of concern is section 1701.41a. Uh, unfortunately, there is not much, there's none, no case law in Ohio that provides guidance as to whether additional notice requirements must be satisfied if a meeting is changed to a virtual meeting. So, given that written notice is to be given, uh, which states the time, place, if any, and purposes of a meeting with shareholders and the means by which shareholders can be present and vote, the conservative tact is to send out a supplemental notice to the shareholders in the same manner that you would send out your other proxy materials and advise them of the change to the virtual meeting. Uh, obviously, that works if you have enough time. Um, not everybody has enough time to do that, so some are um, opting to do the hybrid type uh, to resolve that. That's another reason that you really need to look at your articles and regulations to determine what your parameters are as far as notice of a change. Uh, most, the statutory default is at least seven days notice. However, uh, New York Stock Exchange and New York Stock Exchange American both require 10, 10 days, and there may be other standards as well. You also should um, consider the guidance that the SEC has provided for conducting virtual meetings. It's kind of a best practice um, to be followed, and it would, in their view, they have told us that it would avoid the need to amend proxy materials already set. That does not necessarily address the state law issues, but it does address, address it from the federal perspective if you're a public company. Their uh, three points are, one, issue a press release, uh, two, file an announcement, the, the announcement as definitive additional soliciting materials, um, and then my third would be obviously posting it on your online site with your other proxy materials, and then their fourth one is notify any relevant parties. That would be 
stock exchanges, uh, service providers, and the like. The dis any disclosures that you do about changing from a, an in-person meeting to a virtual meeting must be clear about the logistical details and include how shareholders can remotely access, participate in, and vote at a meeting. And with that, I will turn it over to Tom Zaccone, who is also in the corporate group here in Columbus and heads our insurance practice. Thank you, Betsy. The insurance focus for many businesses and for this call is an examination of a typical company's commercial general liability policy. Many companies purchase uh, business interruption insurance as part of their commercial property insurance to protect against income losses sustained from a disruption in its business operations. However, business op interruption insurance typically only provides coverage for interruption and losses that are caused from a direct physical loss of or damage to insured property for a covered loss. A simple example of this would be the business losses suffered by a company due to a covered fire that results in its manufacturing operations being destroyed, which halts its production, resulting in an interruption of its business operations. So the question is, what constitutes a direct physical loss, uh, which becomes the primary issue in evaluating this coverage? And unfortunately, it may not be defined in the insurance policy. Therefore, depending upon the policy language and the applicable jurisdiction of the insurance contract interpretation, there is an argument, and again, I heighten argument, that a loss of property might be enough to trigger coverage although we expect many insurance companies will disagree with that. There are other questions to consider. Does the presence of COVID-19 in a commercial setting constitute a direct physical loss or damage? For example, the presence of the virus on desks, equipment, or inventory may disrupt business operations because employees are not able to work in the facility. Is there a difference between the presence of COVID-19 and only a suspected presence? What about the losses suffered by a business from a voluntary shutdown in the event, as in some jurisdictions, there are no civil orders in place? Or the lack of workers due to COVID-19, again, absent direct physical damage or contamination? Does coverage require a complete shutdown or is it enough to be hindered or slow? Interestingly, the New York insurance regulator is asking its insurance companies to provide it and its insurers with answers to some of these questions. If coverage is established under the terms of an insurance policy, then we must evaluate next whether the exclusion and exclusion exists that eliminates the coverage. For example, is there a pollution or contamination exclusion in the policy such that COVID-19 would be excluded. These exclusions will need to be evaluated based upon the applicable jurisdiction and the specific exclusion language set forth in the policy. For example, certain jurisdictions may de deem an exclusion ambiguous and find the exclusion does not apply, or other jurisdictions may find the exclusion unambiguous and interpret it in favor of the insurance company finding that no coverage exists. Some insurance companies offer endorsements or policy language that provides coverage for business interruption due to diseases, even absent direct physical damage. These endorsements or coverage can be found in the healthcare industry and in some university policies, among others. Given the availability of these endorsements, you should carefully review your policies to determine whether your insurance policy contains such an endorsement. You should also determine if your business has contingent business interruption insurance, which provides coverage when losses result from closure of suppliers in the supply chain because the supplier has a direct physical loss to property. Of course, this question, what is a direct physical loss to property, we've already discussed. Auto manufacturers will undoubtedly be reviewing their policies in this regard. General liability insurance may also um, become a, uh, an issue 
as it protects businesses against third-party claims for bodily injury, which could protect the business from persons making claims that the business failed to exercise reasonable care in protecting them or warning them about the risk of COVID-19. Coverage could be triggered from gross negligence and failure by a business to take precautions resulting in bodily industry. <clears throat> this might require that there be accidental occurrence. However, even if coverage is found, you must evaluate again whether there's an exception in your policy for pollution or contamination which would prevent coverage. As COVID-19 plays out, other policies which may come into play are director and officer liability insurance in the event of a shareholder lawsuit, employment practices liability insurance, workers' compensation insurance, and trade credit insurance. So we recommend companies work with their internal risk managers, brokers, and agents, as well as legal counsel to help navigate the challenges. When in doubt, Put carriers and brokers on notice if you think you have a covered insurance claim or an arguable claim. Ambiguous policies are typically resolved by the courts in favor of the insured. However, this can take years to resolve. So finally, here are some quick practical steps. Take, com take commercially reasonable efforts to mitigate your losses. Preserve relevant documentation and information relative to your claim and capture lost profits and expenses accurately. 